0: Today we are doing a deep dive into wearables with Dr. Stephen LaBeouf. Dr. Stephen LaBeouf co-founded Valenzel Inc. He is also an inventor and co-inventor of over 50 foundational patents for accurate wearable sensors. He is a technology speaker par excellence, as you will hear in this interview. And he has formerly driven the optoelectronic biosensor program at GE Global Research, where he primarily focused on the development of biosensor systems and nanosensor technology. LaBeouf, during his research at North Carolina State University, created optoelectronic solid state materials as well as devices. LeBuff holds a PhD from North Carolina State University in the area of electrical engineering and graduated from Louisiana Tech University with a B.S. in the field of mathematics and Hearing. Hi, Leba.
1: Hello. Good to be on your show.
0: <laughs> Great to have you here. So, LaBeouf, in preparing for this conversation, I spent some time going down the rabbit hole on the internet, which is quite deep, about what exactly wearables are and what their history is. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about wearables? Are we talking about garments? Are we talking gadgets, medical devices, computers? Should a study of technology worn on the body exclude technologies inserted in the body? pacemakers, brain implants for seizure patients? Or those wearables too? What's a wearable?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question because when I started Valence Cell in 2006, there was no wearables marketplace at the time. And the the term wearables, I'm not aware, no pun intended, was a term at all in 2007. And one of the things about wearable devices, if you go back to like what's the oldest wearable technology, probably the oldest wearable technology might have been clothing, technology to keep us warm or to keep bugs away from us or protect us from whatever the case might be. And then as time went on, maybe the next big wearable technology was was weapons you could carry around you or maybe jewelry that you could carry to identify yourself, maybe to serve in trade. And time goes further and further. And you get to spectacles, you get to wristwatches that are mechanical. But the way people define wearables today, it's an evolving definition, no doubt. But as it's defined today, it's it's electrical. So there's electricity involved. So spectacles wouldn't be a wearable device by the the modern definition of how we define wearable device in the field anyway. Also, a wearable device is not an implantable device. So a wearable device is at at most, at most minimally invasive. For example, in in the field, most people would consider, for example, a pacemaker not to be a wearable device, even though it's being worn inside you. It's uh, something that you wouldn't Call a wearable device, you, you consider it to be an implantable device. But then, m- most people in the field would consider, for example, say a, a Dexcom continuous glucose monitor to be a wearable device, even though it does have little micro needles that go a little bit into your skin to pull out the interstitial fluid. So having electricity involved somehow in the device, and then also having the device at most be minimally minimally invasive. And then now, typically in these wearable devices. People in, in the modern day, they also involve biometric monitoring. And so in that case, we'll, we usually will ter- call them biometric wearables. So a device that picks up biometric information that, that is also a wearable device, that can take many different forms. You, you mentioned about how are they wristbands or are they ear, earpieces or clothing or apparel? And it could be all those things. Back before the term wearable device came about, Deb, the term used for wearable devices was often called wearable computers. So, for example, a, a Garmin GPS device that you might wear on your wrist that communicated with a Garmin chest strap back in, say, 2004, 2005, that was considered a wearable computer. Today, you'd kind of just consider those wearables.
0: And are there particular like pivot points in the history of wearable technology that we should know about? Any like fundamental moments that changed the course of wearable history?
1: I think so. I think especially as we think about wearable devices today, because usually when you think of a wearable device today, you'll think of it in terms of a biometric wearable. So the technology that's in these biometric wearables today that's most prevalent is this technology used to measure your heart rate and other biometrics. You see it in some popular devices, you know, like, for example, the Apple Watch, uh, the Google Fitbit devices, Suunto, Garmin devices. And that technology is called photoplasmography. Really what it means is a way of measuring volumetric changes in your body with light. And that technology goes a long, 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 long way. So in, in the whole scheme of biometric wearables and that whole timeline, rather, the first time people started discovering that you could look at blood flow with light was right around when the first light bulbs were created, before Edison. And people would put those light bulbs across their hand and see the blood flow profile. And they would use this for photoplasmography. And, and, and this was before the 1900s. So this goes way back. And then there's a huge jump to about the 1960s, 1970s, when companies started using uh, much smaller optical sources to measure blood flow changes with kind of little miniature lamps. And then, then uh, the technology was developed using light-emitting diodes, which were even smaller and more compact. And then the big innovation that came after that was making those devices work when you move. Because if you've ever been in a dark room with a flashlight and you're trying to look at something in that dark room, you're shining that flashlight around. And if you're nervous and, and your arm is shaking, you can't see anything. All you see is the motion of the light shaking around. But but if if you can find a way to kind of, you know, with a camera, for example, a motion-detecting motion camera to, to cancel out that motion, you can still see a steady path, even if you're shaking. That technology, some major variation of that had to happen for wearable devices. So those are some of the big developments that happened there. But in terms of wearable devices, biometric wearables, from, from the standpoint of uh, a broad spectrum of devices, one of the companies that made a big change in the marketplace was this company you probably, you may have never heard of this company called Body Media. Does that name sound familiar to you at all?
0: No, no. What does it do?
1: Body Media came out, I want to say, in 1998. And what they did was something very different than other wearable devices before. Other wearable devices were, like I said, they call them wearable computers, these GPS watches, these ECG chest straps that really people did not want to wear a chest strap to measure their biometrics. And, And it was pretty clear that only sports enthusiasts would ever wear them. And and one of the reasons people wore these devices was to measure their energy expenditure, the calories burn. And and what body media said is, I can solve that calories burn problem without forcing you to wear a chest strap. And and they developed this technology. It was an armband. It was called the body bug. And it looked like a bug. That's why they called it a body bug. And it was really innovative. They, They had these sensors to measure body heat and measure body motion and also measure sweat on the body. And they had this little algorithm that turned that into a really accurate estimation of energy expenditure. Now, the company grew very slowly, and it never really became a big deal. And and there's a bunch of reasons why it didn't. In in around 2007, 2008, one of the innovations that came out was taking just step counters, which Omron, for example, had step counters for a long time. And Fitbit came along and said, let me just take a step counter and make it easy to use. And that act of just making that step counter easy to use had a big effect than anything body media did. Fitbit's step counter was crap when it came to measuring your energy expenditure. As far as measuring your calories to this day, it sucks at doing it. It just does. Body media all the way in 1998 had a much better calorie counter by far than Fitbit's devices ever had. But nobody wanted to wear a big-ass bug on their arm when they could just you know, flip a little digital pedometer on you. But not just that, Fitbit had it to where they have a wireless transceiver that plugged into your computer at the time. And whenever you walk by it, the wireless information communicated to that that wireless transceiver and just zapped it into the computer. So you never had to type anything in. With a body media device, you had to get this plug. God help you, maybe you had the right adapter for your computer, you know, and, and plug it in. And that was on a good day. And so it's being good enough for the use case was how Fitbit was able to kind of take tilt that marketplace towards their direction and body media eventually got acquired by by a company called jawbone and jawbone eventually kind of fell by the wayside itself it just couldn't compete in that marketplace
0: I mean this is fascinating you've talked about so many different technologies that have to come together to together. create a wearable. <laughs> Can you give us an outline? What are the technologies that have to come together for a wearable? How does the technology work?
1: Well, it depends on the use case, but there are some that are critical. One of them, of course, is it's electrical, so you got to power it somehow. So battery technology becomes super important. And if it weren't from advances that have been going on in parallel all this time with battery technology, you know, we would have never gotten there because the, the recharge cycle for a wearable device has to be consistent with the use case. So that's one thing that's always there. Another thing is it, it may seem less sexy in the grand scheme of things to say an electrical engineer, but wearability. Materials that don't cause your arm to rot off or, or you, you want to wear. They look good. They feel good. They breathe well. That's important. And there were some hits, uh, how you say, uh, fits and starts on, on that in, in, the, in the marketplace. Another thing that's that becomes really important with these devices is getting the data out in a seamless way. So So seamless wireless connectivity. And I'll tell you, you know, Bluetooth has been around for a while, but Bluetooth is a complete pain in the ass to get data out of it. I mean, the, the bane of my existence is Bluetooth. And if you've ever had a Bluetooth device, when it's connecting, it's great. When it ain't connecting, you know, it's poo to with a rotten root. So battery power, wearability, and, and how do you get the data out in a seamless way are some, maybe some of the most critical, critical things in the wearable. Now, for biometric wearable, it's even more difficult. Because humans, you know, we're different. We're not not a clockwork orange. We're we're not a robotic organism. We are different. And the things we do change how our body responds to things. You know, it's very dynamic. And, And so you're trying to measure something off a person consistently. And everybody's different. And the sensor needs to couple with you. Well, when you move your body and move around, that sh- coupling changes. The way the light couples to your body, the way the electrodes connect to your body, all that changes. And so make a sensor, sensor technologies that are really robust to, to the human and, and, and are diverse in that they can work on a variety of different people become really important.
0: I want to talk about that a little bit because the the thrust of diversity is something really important, I think, as an ethical question. So we'll get back to that. But, you know, you're talking about this and especially the materials brought me back to a moment that Fitbit, I believe it was, first came out. And I remember when the Fitbit first came out. People would monitor their steps with a Fitbit. And then I started to see something really interesting happen, which is that they would monitor their steps with a Fitbit, and then the Fitbit would give them the readout of the activity. And then the people would change their activity to change the reading on the Fitbit. And this fascinated me because it's a really clear example of a concept that I've been thinking about for a very long time, which is the concept of cybernetics. Cybernetics, just to define the term for our listeners, is an area of study and thinking about how machines interact with bodies through what are called feedback loops. Um, An outcome, just to give a definition of feedback loop, is when an outcome is registered and recorded and then becomes a new input. And then that input feeds into the process to create a new output, which then in turn becomes a new input. So to go back to the Fitbit example, I saw how deeply human behavior was changing in response to the description of that behavior by the machine. And an observation or description of behavior in these cases didn't just record the behavior, it was actually changing that behavior. So how do we think about that change in human behavior by the machine that's supposed to record and report it? What do we get when we have these kinds of feedback loops where the machine actually is changing the way we interact with the world?
1: Well, this is very fundamental. As a matter of fact, Deb, I want to say in 2007 or 2006, one of those two years, it was kind of a landmark study that came out on this topic where people were given pedometers. Now, these weren't fancy pedometers. This is pre Fitbit. Uh, you know, Fitbit started after Valence Cell. And th- they were just basic pedometers that you would get that stored the data that you downloaded data to your computer on. And they gave them to the people. And they had these two groups. I can't remember the total number of subjects in this, in this study, but I want to say it was about roughly 50 people who had pedometers and 50 who didn't. All of the same average physical habits. So you got two groups, one that you give pedometers to and the other you don't. And the one you give pedometers to, what you say to them is, hey, here's a pedometer. Here's how you use it. And that's it. This is how you use it. And that's it. And you don't have to sing in falsetto. (laughs) Give them the, the device and you say, use it. And and What happened in that study was really bizarre. It it, it was a hypothesis that was there, but it was really not expected to be so strong, is just giving the people the pedometers and showing them how to use them led to changes, positive changes, what we would call positive changes in their biometrics. They lost weight. The blood pressures went down. I can't remember the the details of the other biometrics and how they changed, but everything moved in a positive direction in a statistically significant way without any special training. So just having the devices and getting that feedback and people seeing that, that I'm moving more and wanting to move more competing against themselves was was enough, even without the fancy frills of a cool web interface. So your point about you know what, what is this what does this do? essentially the, these wearable devices, they can be like a, for lack of a better term sixth sense to provide you additional feedback by which you can guide yourself. Now in the case of burning calories in the case of moving around more, that's a very simple thing that seems to be pretty positive. It's hard to see how you would somebody being guided by this principle of moving around more would lead to something bad. And so it, it works it works really well in that particular case.
0: Well, let's talk about the something bad because obviously a significant change in behavior in the case of the Fitbit is to get humans to move more, to take more steps, which is something deeply important in an age where we are seeing large health concerns about obesity. Should we celebrate the Fitbit unilaterally? Is it just a good thing or are those bad things that you talked about something we should think about? Are there points of concern that you see?
1: I think there can be. There are points of concern. I'll tell you. So when Valenzo started in 2006, the Grand Visage, the big face, the big vision we had is we had this vision, this really this passion, this dream that people wearing devices, in this, which includes clothing, you know, whatever it is you're wearing already, with senses embedded, can generate their own content for themselves that can then be processed to provide them feedback that they could use to improve their health uniquely. The idea is everyone's different you go to the doctor they get the same they look at your body weight your height your bmi whatever the case is they give you a prescription they dose in a way what your diet and exercise should be based off that those simple things but if we can measure more about a person could we tell somebody that hey you're not the, the person who should be drinking at all because you know we we've, we've monitored you we've seen how your body has responded to you drinking you know if if you do drink you're you're not going to live nearly as long as some of your peers are going to who who can drink Or maybe you, these fatty foods aren't so bad for you. That's not what you need to avoid because those things aren't having such a negative effect on you. Uh, So so maybe get rid of some of the myths that might be there or rather maybe overgeneralizations to where we could have some kind of personalized medicine. That was the big vision. Now, where this can go wrong, in my opinion, is if you're providing people information that's not correct, you mislead them. Or if you provide them the correct information, but you you mislead them on how to use that information. And so, you know, when I look at it from the standpoint of the positive and the negative with the wearable devices, I I tend to look at it more from, look at what you're building to see if you're being misleading, either intentionally, and if you identify you are, well, then now it's not intentionally more, you killed it, great, you stopped it. Or more common, unintentionally, things you're not thinking about that might lead to a a bad outcome. Uh, Give you an example. Let's say, for example, that your doctor tells you, that your heart rate, your resting heart rate is too high. You, see, you know, you're sitting down in a chair, they're measuring your blood pressure, your SpO2, right? And they see that your resting heart rate is too high. Uh, they say, wow, you're sitting down here and you're 100. Last time you came here, you were 90. The time before you were 80, there's a trend here. And they say, oh, you know, with well, these, these, these wearable devices you can get, they can tell you your resting heart rate. And and you could track this, and you could send it to me. There's a, a reimbursement code now doctors can use to, to get to get reimbursed for pulling that data in, and they see your resting heart rates going down, and the doctors going, "Whoa, whoa you're you're in great shape. You know, you're you're going down." But that say that device isn't accurate enough. Now he's getting the wrong or she's getting the wrong information. And maybe that doctor says everything's fine. And you come in and they test you and your heart resting heart rate is 150. And God knows what kind of damage has happened to you, you know, during that time. And your doctor, she looks at you and she says, oh, what what went wrong here? And it's because the the device really wasn't measuring accurately. So in that case, once once you tell someone the resting heart rate and you tell them how it could be used, if if you're wrong about it, you really got to think about what what are the outcomes there? How's this how's this going to interact with the basic workflow of a physician, and is this going to potentially do more harm than good? I'll give you another example: atrial fib, Apple Watch. Are, are, uh, you probably you know in the news it was a lot of information about atrial fib. There were two main. Uh, the company that first really uh, democratized atrial fib was this company. This company called AliveCor, and AliveCor they developed this technology that that made it straightforward to use your phone to measure your ECG and measure an ECG wave well enough to determine if you have AFib. And so the company, one of its founders is a medical doctor who's dealt with this condition before and managed so many cases. And what they knew is they needed to market this product to people who, who were at risk of AFib. And, and so they market it to those folks who are at risk of AFib and that way they already have a risk of AFib. You detect that they have it. If you do get a false positive, so every sensor is gonna have a false positive and false negative, there's no way to get around it. They're always gonna have some error. But if, if they're already in a category of people who who are at risk, well then your chances that you give them a false negative is, is lower. And so when you look at the, the public health value and the cost to the healthcare system, it actually works out where if you can tell somebody who's at risk that they do have it and they take these interventions It helps them out. and also helps the system out. It's a win-win on all all sides. That's not what Apple did. Apple took that technology and they integrated it into an Apple Watch to everybody. So now everybody can measure AFib. Because they didn't get the approvals, then uh, they only were allowed to market it towards people who didn't have AFib. Well, every sense of technology, like I said, is going to have false positives and false negatives. And one of the things that's happening now is a lot of younger people are getting these false negatives, or excuse me, false positives. So, so they go to the doctor. What's this about? Well, come to find out it's a false positive, but this is after now the system spent thousands of dollars in. Maybe the person's been stressed out and apprehensive about it. So it's really important to not just have the technology right, to think about where it's going and who you marketed it to and what your claims are.
0: That's absolutely true and absolutely fascinating. And now I'm thinking much more about the context of you know what, what we talked about before we started recording, which is the ethical not can we have this technology, not can we build it, but ought we to have it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great point because I would say, you know, Stephen LaBeouf sitting right here in this chair, I would say that the way core did it, they ought to have done it. It made sense. It had better outcomes at reduced cost for the system. The way Apple did it, I can't say that they ought to have done that. I can't say that because, because I'm not convinced that they've improved public health at lower cost.
0: And you're bringing up another, I think, really important question, which is that, again, if we're talking about not just can we build this, ought we to build it, there are so many different people that you probably need in that room to ask these questions, right? You need somebody who knows the technical dimension, but you also need somebody who knows the psychological impacts. You you need to have somebody who is familiar with public health. You probably need somebody who has a kind of understanding about how this translates across different cultures as well. So from your perspective, for this technology who needs to be sitting at that table? who should be there when we make these kinds of decisions about what not just what we should build but how should we build?
1: Who should be there? That question may be different for different companies. It may be you know different companies different different styles of companies. I could tell you at Valensol, what we do is part of it's a company culture frankly you know our company culture it encourages people to be outspoken and to, to not be afraid to bring up controversial ideas. And, and not be afraid to be uh, say something that may be against the, the, the norm or the direction the company wants to go. And it's, it's encouraged. We have these discussions. And, and from that, you might get some a thought that you never thought before. Someone may call out something that, whoa, whoa, we didn't think of that. And, and, uh, but it's because of that culture that's there. So it allows all the different brains to work as a supercomputer, regardless of the profession, in the different categories of the company, all, all throughout, because it's a very multidisciplinary company it could be that some, for some companies that are much larger than Vale and so maybe that's not the the, the, the most effective way to, to do this. Maybe they need to be more structured. Maybe they need to be more more rigid. And maybe they need to have more functional roles of people who can go through these things. But I'll tell you that we have the the fortunate aspect of being able to take advantage of all the experts in our company who are not afraid to tell us about the direction we're going. And, and the thing about it too is, you know, in this field, it's a lot of work. This is a freaking lot of work. Whenever you're making a wearable device, it's a lot of work. And this. It's rare that somebody is. I'm, I'm sure that the cases must be there, but I'm thinking about it right now. I'm not aware of a case where any of the scientists, engineers were doing this because of the money. I mean, you know, it's there's a bigger vision, there's a bigger, bigger goal they want to do. There's now there's a question. There should be a question about if that goal ultimately ends up having the positive outcome you want. But, but sometimes you may not even know, even from a negative thing, if it's going to be positive in the long term or not. I'll give you an example. So I just talked about Apple and, and AFib and how I can't say that they ought to have done what they did. And in, in, in the contrast, the LiveCore, very similar, if not identical technology, but marketed a different way towards a different population the right way. They should have definitely done that. And I'm glad they did. But there are many different cases where the technology might have been developed with the intent of a positive outcome that it didn't happen, but the positive outcome came later on. For example, Apple launched this product. It got approval. It got out there. People are more familiar with atrial fib. There are more stories coming out about how the Apple Watch might not be the best device for you now because it's not approved for that category that Alive 4 has. But maybe that awareness is good, and maybe that encourages Apple to do better, and maybe that leads to better outcomes long-term. And I can't really say.
0: I wanted to go back to some of the bad things, because the one that we didn't talk about, I think, is a big one that I get concerned about, which is the concern that actually got me to stop wearing the wearable that I had, and that is data privacy. I think about the fact that wearables generate quite a bit of data about the people who wear them, their health conditions. The data that wearables collect include uh, telling uh, when and how much somebody is sleeping sleeping. sleeping, eating, where they're going, when they're having sex, how much sex they're having. It's deeply intimate. And then that data gets transferred to companies. Are you worried about data privacy? Should we be worried about data privacy with wearables?
1: I think that people should take privacy very seriously. And here is the deal. In order to get the most out of a wearable device... You do need a way to get that data in some computational system that could crunch those numbers and pro- provide value to you. But what you have to be mindful of is what rights have you given away to the company that's doing that? There, there was um, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but when Google was acquiring Fitbit, the European Union was concerned about the monopoly capabilities of Google. But they were also concerned about Google having all this health data. And were they going to target ads to people based on things they learned about their health? And Google gave a weird answer that did not really definitively say what they were going to do. I got to say just weird way to answer the question. I can't remember. I, I need to find that quote. It made me think, wow, they clearly are trying to dodge this question. And, you know, if so I know my data has got to go into some computational system and it's got to do something for me. So I'm expecting that data. That's where it's going to stay. And that unless I explicitly authorize otherwise, that's where it's going to stay towards me. And and one of the things is people have have gotten a little more laissez-faire now about allowing their data to get out there and that they may not like that in the longer term. You you talked about, for example, uh, I'll never forget, you talked about knowing things as you can use a wearable device to maybe guess when somebody is having sex, for example. And it, it reminds me of a story I'll never forget. One time I went to a presentation of a person who is an expert hack, an expert web hack. And he was presenting about he could pull anyone from the audience. And pull through their data from their search history and say when it is that they were most likely to have sex. And he pulled this dude in and he took, you know, took the guy's web credentials, went through it and said Wednesdays between five and six thirty. And the guy was like, whoa, how'd you do this? And he did it based off the search history and under, figuring out then from that search search history he had an algorithm to determine when the person was working, when he came back home, when he got back on the computer, when, you know, it, all this stuff was there. And, and just from that, so that's not even a wearable device. That's just from somebody living their day, logging on to a computer. So you can imagine now when you have, add wearable information, when you provide that information to somebody, you really want to make sure that they are focused on you getting better from this and not some ulterior motive to monetize your information outside of what's going to help
0: you. And what about, how do you think about this in terms of like, for example, public health? So if the aim is not the commercial advantage of a company, but for example, collecting data in order to be able to perhaps have better diagnostics or to be able to create a health structure that can indicate when somebody is likely to get ill or what treatments might benefit somebody. Do you see data collection, not for the advantage of the individual, but of the collective or or the public? in different terms, in terms of data privacy and what we allow there.
1: I'll tell you the first thing that comes to my mind in response to your question, and let me know I'm off the, where you mean in this question is, you know where we're seeing some of the biggest resonance in companies leading an um, appropriate way to take wearable data for the right use? And when I say it, it's gonna make sense, but I gotta say I was kind of blindsided when it came into play uh, three years ago because I thought, wow, that's so obvious. How did I miss that? Is life insurance. So John Hancock, for example, um, they, three years ago, I want to say it was three years ago, they flat out said, we are no longer going to underwrite any new life insurance policies unless they have a wearables component. And one of the things they've been doing is investing in ways to provide services to people to help them get healthier. So now in that particular case, John Hancock, you know, doesn't have, they don't have the incentive to make money off your personal data because that destroys the whole business. So that's a case where you have the right incentives aligned for that positive outcome. But, but let's look at what the exact opposite would be. Google. I mean, you know, I mean, really, I mean, Google's, they make money with you as the product. Ain't nothing wrong with that in the grand scheme of things, as long as it's consenting adults and you really know what you're getting into. But the thing about it, when you think of health information, it, it's not intuitive to say, OK, given health information to Google, they're going to not give that to anybody else. They're just going to lock that down. They're not going to try and monetize that. It seems like that's, you know, trying to... To, to ask, you know, someone other than Frodo to watch the ring, you know, to, to guard the ring. I mean, they're not going to be able to withstand that, it seems. So I think you do have to think about what the incentives are of the folks who are building these platforms. And, and if they're properly aligned towards they make money off of, they improve their outcome. Life insurers want you to live longer because they don't want to pay that out. So, so and you want to live longer. So there's a resonance there.
0: I mean, I'm deeply suspicious of insurance companies. Where I thought that story was going to go was that the life insurance company was going to make people wear wearables so that they could start to amass data that might allow them to avoid or or allow them to not provide insurance policies to people who might be likely to uh, use those insurance policies. So, you know, this wearable tracking possibility might have the ability to improve somebody's health. It might also be a way for companies to limit who they decide to insure based on you know people's monitored health data.
1: You know, there's there's no doubt in my mind that some of that data may be used to determine where they're going to price the life insurance. No doubt. But the thing about it is that a life insurer that is taking money from you and then has to pay you money when you die, they really don't want you to die at that point. And so any service they're they're providing is going to be aligned with where they want their outcome to be. That's very different, though, than, say, a health insurer, because, you know, a health insurer, they may not necessarily have the same motivations to keep you alive. Uh, you know, it's, it's not impossible that, you know, their incentives might be, well, OK, I could keep you alive another year, but that might cost me a million dollars. Uh, so so it's, it depends on where that where those incentives are aligned.
0: Yeah, I'm very aware that a life insurance policy would prefer that I stay alive. So in that sense, our alignment is uh, perfectly symmetrical, but they might refuse to insure me. They might refuse to insure people who have some sort of you know, uh, condition that they can detect by somebody having worn a wearable. And I I foresee, for example, people with life-limiting illnesses or disabilities perhaps being deeply disadvantaged from that kind of philosophy that maybe helps people stay alive longer but then makes people who perhaps are more precarious health for reasons that are completely out of their control uninsurable.
1: Yeah, I think that's this kind of thing is why we need to monitor what, what the outcomes are of this. I think it's good to think about the pros and cons of any of these things. You know, Right now, already, some people have a hard time getting insured. So what happens if wearable devices make that harder for some people? Well, that, that's not one of the good outcomes of wearable devices. Uh, now, at the same time, wearable devices, when used right, could reduce the need of anyone to even have insurance or reduce insurance costs so much that now they can afford to bring in more folks into that fold. Uh, which direction ultimately will go? I guess we don't know yet. We know the way we want it to go, uh, but it's so early. I think it's it's hard to say. I know in the case of John Hancock, that I was impressed because they had sh- were able to show the data that that when people had a wearable device, that reduced their numbers, which had a, a very big endpoint of pushing their life expectancy out. And so that just having that to where people were encouraged to have a wearable device. And and this was based off of, like I said, that I think it was really, it was a breakthrough study, I would say in 2006, 2007. But since then, we've had continued evidence that this is the case. Just having people engaged in a wearable device, showing them, even if it's just them, seeing the biometric information, for some reason, somehow it encourages them to do the activities that improve their biometrics.
0: There's a, I think, larger question that I'm forming in my mind based on some of the things that you say, and it's a question of what's happening on a sociological level with the proliferation of wearables. And when we look at wearables as kind of facilitators of body and self-interactions, Um, These are data gathering devices that open up the body to concerns about big data and design devices that sometimes offer uh, highly gendered and racialized functions and, and content as neutral. And out of that, I think we can start to see how wearables are troubling some of the boundaries that sociologists Uh, frequently seek to map and to analyze the boundary for example between work and leisure public and private nature and culture body and self i think that these boundaries are deeply important to the idea of what it means to be human are wearable technologies changing some of those fundamental dichotomies are they shifting the boundaries around what it means to be human on like a sociological uh, empirical level
1: you know it's I don't. Short answer is I don't know. I'll give you an example that came came to my mind j- just now when you talk asking this question is. So in my family, a lot of folks in my family have. So I'm, I'm Cajun. I'm from I'm about 50 miles southwest of New Orleans, where I'm from, and a lot of people have these traitors or traiteurs. They're they're kind of like healers, and so people might have. Uh, say, a tretes that they go to, and and she might service a bunch of them. And she prescribes certain things for them to do in order for them to, say, alleviate a pain or, or something like this uh, that they may have or trouble. And it's interesting, the, the people will, will get in communities and they'll talk about this. They'll talk about what they're doing and you know how her guidance is helping them out. And it's part of, becomes part of the social culture of this. <laughs> it's funny, I I see I've seen the same kind of thing, completely different, you know, from a, treta, is a wearable device, people wearing the wearable devices, engaging on that. What yeah. is it saying about them? Uh, when do they feel it doesn't work? How do they interpret it? when can they trust the device when uh, for example, w- when the, for example, a little conversa- literal conversation is does your wearable device tell you the right heart rate when you're ra- running really fast because mine does and is that when can you trust it okay that's when that's when I can trust it so that's when I know to trust the data from it and so people kind of work together to figure out how these things really work and when they break down, which is so similar to what, what I've remembered from hearing people talk about the healers too what what did she say or he sh- he say that was worth. Versus what wasn't.
0: And what happens, I think, like in both of those scenarios with the wearable and the how do you say it?
1: Oh, Tarete is a, is a female um, uh, kind of healer.
0: So, one of the interesting things between the Tarete and the wearable is the fact that we are, in a sense, asking an external arbiter to identify things that are happening inside of us. And then to kind of give us a readout of what's happening inside of us. And then we observe and respond to this external thing. And that's, too, a kind of change of the boundaries about what the self is. By externalizing our data, we're projecting outward something that's happening inside of us. And in a sense, we become kind of sociological or communal in that process. And I wonder if, you know, on the level of the body, there's something really interesting that happens when we externalize something that happens internally to us.
1: To your point, Deb, uh, something that, I, you know, I don't think I've ever talked about this before publicly, but it's interesting. We we discover a phenomena in our labs, people wearing wearable devices, and we don't understand what causes it. But if you came into our lab, for example, and we fitted you with a wearable device, to do some measurements on you. The quality of the data we pull off you will not be as good as if you've been wearing the device for a while and talk with us about the data. So literally, I can take a device call it device A and device B, two identical devices, okay? You put device A on, you come to our lab, you do testing with it, and the data doesn't look as good. We we don't feel we're able to pick up the data as clean as we'd like it from you. You come back to the lab, we put device B on you, okay? Device B and device A are identical devices. Nothing different about them. The data quality looks much better. That's weird. Well, Let's put device A on. Surely it's not gonna, it's, it's, it's gonna be bad. Something's off with it. No, you still are better. Something happens when people wear the wearable devices and see the data. I don't understand it. We've seen this time and time and time again, where the data quality gets better on the person. And I'm you know, i not a mysticist in any particular way, so I have no reason to believe it's mystical. But, but there's, a, there's something going on between people connecting with those devices
0: somehow. Fascinating. So the devices are not changing what it means to be human. They're actually <laughs> changing our, our humanness.
1: Something is changing there. My suspicion is, I have no proof of this. Okay, so this is a hypothesis. When people come in that first time, and they're nervous, and their autonomic nervous systems are off kilter, that their data is more erratic, and the body is less profuse, so you may get less data. But once they see the data, they and they can breathe in and out and see the data change in, and they kind of um, connect with the device, those those irregularities may go away.
0: I like to think that we're just becoming more and more uh, android-like <laughs> and that this this is the first step toward the singularity. <laughs> not not impossible. Oh, it's all my fault. Actually, I had a conversation with Kate Hales, who's a very famous initiator of post-humanism. <laughs> She says singularity has already happened, so.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe, maybe so. I mean, singularity from the standpoint of AI. Yeah, I think where humans really have the big advantage there is we can do all this in a small little brain. And uh, the computers need a, a room that would burn up a, a city if it, if it were all together.
0: On that point, what are some of the technologies or applications to technologies happening right now that are exciting to you?
1: Well, like I mentioned before, the the big face of it all for me was this idea that people can improve their health uniquely to them. So, we can tell people these things we've learned is so if you're go so first of all, the the way I view people gravitating towards these wearable devices is people who really do want to live a longer, healthier life uh, that you know they they don't want to age any faster than they have to. And they don't know what are the best things to do for them necessarily. You know, they know the same things we all know, but what is really best And and these wearable devices can, can help you manage those things. And since each, everyone's different, you have different conditions. So for example, two of the areas that we've, we've been addressing in, in the marketplace with our technology is cardiovascular disease, which a lot of people have, and, and arguably almost everybody has, the older they get, and then also in the case of, of, of glucose metabolism, and so in the case of cardiovascular management, you know, we started with, can we measure heart rate accurately enough in the things that people do in their everyday lives to provide them the right kind of feedback with the contextual feedback for them to know. If The things they're doing are making them more or less fit. But now we have this technology that with the wearable devices can also monitor your blood pressure. So with the same optical sense of technology that's in these wearable devices today, we can provide you a blood pressure estimation that is every bit as accurate as if you would use a blood pressure cuff to do that. And so, in that particular case, now you have a common language with your physician. You can you can track your blood pressure throughout the day. If there are any swings or irregularities that happen, understand what might have caused them. Understand how to mitigate them. Understand then maybe with when you try different diets and different types of exercise, or even different just different types of stress relief mechanisms. See if it's really making an impact or not. But then on the glucose metabolism side, I, you know I'm I'm quoted quite quite often in the marketplace for my um, antagonism towards companies that say that they can track your glucose with a wearable device, and remember how we defined those earlier. Uh, so a truly wearable in this case, what I mean truly wearable, not even minimally invasive. Wearable as in I'm just going to put this device on, and it's not going to try and put needles through my body. You know, it's it's nothing. Just completely. I don't think there's a way in a traditional wearable device without without having it anything invasive or minimally invasive to track someone's glucose well enough to dose their insulin. I don't think that's possible. I've investigated it for many years. I've been offered a lot of money to start companies that would do this, and I've never trusted any of the technologies. But I'll tell you what is, is possible and will happen. And it's still pretty exciting. It's not as exciting as being able to tell you what your glucose is, but with these wearable devices, we can tell you what zones you're in. We can tell you if your glucose is too high, if it's too low, or if you're just about right. Or if you're about to go into one of those zones. And so now if you, for example, are managing type 1 or type 2 diabetes or maybe pre diabetic now with a wearable device, once you have this technology in place, you can understand, okay, how's my diet affecting this? Because nobody wants to have to be managing diabetes if they don't have to. It causes all kinds of chain reaction problems. So this is an opportunity for us to help people who are about, maybe about to get there, turn it around, and then people who are there not have to prick themselves so damn much. You know, If, I, if I'm managing type 1 and I, I, I know that I'm in a range that's good, I may not need to go out of my way to prick myself. But if I see that I'm, I'm about to go on a rise or a fall, I can know to dose myself with maybe some insulin or, or with a glucose dose, depending on which direction I'm going, preemptively. And, and so that's, that's some of the areas where we get, get more excited about helping people manage those conditions and prevent those conditions for, for their own benefit.
0: You didn't mention this, but in the process of preparing for this podcast uh, interview, I was really excited to read about your work with wearable hearing aid devices. Those who listen to the show know that I care deeply about adaptive and accessible technologies uh, for disability. Could you talk a little bit about that technology specifically?
1: Well, that's super exciting area. Boy, is that exciting. i tell you. So first of all, let me shout out to the pioneers in, in the hearing aid space. So one of our partners is Sunian and, and Sunian has taken our technology and integrated it into these small, tiny little receiving canal. They call them speaker drives that go inside the hearing aids that also have our biometrics in there. And what's great about that is because there's a, a strong comorbidity of people who have hearing loss issues associated with other aspects, for example, such as cardiovascular disease and also vestibular issues where they might trip or fall more likely. Now that the technology is in these hearing aids, it's going to make a huge difference. But not just Sunian, companies like Sonova, companies like Widex, uh, which, which acquired Otacon, companies like g health g hearing rather, the, the, these companies have been superly pioneer in the space, and what's what's been found is it's uh, it's like we're finding out a bunch of new stuff about this. So the way I learned, I don't know how you learned it in school, but when I was a little uh, Cajun boy uh going to school, we learned that the way you lose your hearing is you go out loud music, and your these little hair structures in your ear, inner ear, kind of break off, they weaken, and and then you can't hear as as well. and you eventually you start to lose your hearing we know now just now i mean like in maybe 10 years ago that that's probably not the way most people lose their hearing at all and it's crazy how this was discovered but it, it looks like what causes you to lose hearing is brain damage cognitive decline and your brain loses the ability to quickly process the sound so so people who might seem for example tests have been done out of out of a cleveland clinic in in new mexico or arizona i can't remember which site that is now in in their clinic out west they did some studies where they took people who were classified as having dementia. They gave them hearing aids. They gave them the same test. They didn't have dementia anymore because brain, what happens, they, they, they speculate and they've done some MRI scans and other studies to, to show that this is probably true is that when your brain can't hear, it's such an important thing. It uses other resources to process that sound. Well, now you can't use that to how well am I standing? How well am I walking? What's your name? you allow the person to be able to hear above that noise floor. Now their brain resources can go into the things that you love about. Them. And so, uh, and, and then simple technologies, I'm saying simple. Yeah. I, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, s- simple to, certain, certainly simple to understand. But, but the thing is, say I'm talking to you and I want to listen to you. You know, I want, I don't want to listen to this other crap around me, but I've got a hearing aid on. The technology can, can focus my listening on you. And now I've got to stand up and walk around. Well, if my hearing's still focus, I can really screw myself up because I can't hear what's going on behind me. I've got, you know, and it's kind of annoying to say, okay, let me adjust my hearing focus. But now that I'm standing up to go walk, it knows that because it can sense I'm moving and it opens my hearing around again. So now I can have really active, dynamic hearing to to help me with my environment in a more seamless way. And the reason why it's simple to understand, but it's not simple to implement is what if what if it goes wrong? What if it doesn't know you stood up? And it's annoying, to, you know. Now you're hearing every place you're looking at, and, and so getting that right is a technical challenge. It's it's one that is kind of where the, the real intellectual property comes out from, and, and real big thinking comes out of out of solving those problems.
0: I mean, this is fascinating to me, especially because I'm interested in the relationship between technological development and disability. And I'm really interested in the idea that technological production, especially for products that many of us ultimately end up adopting and using regularly, is related to products that originated as adaptive (laughs) technologies for people with disabilities. Some of my favorite examples are the audiobooks, which I use all the time. The Segway is another example. The keyboard is a really good example. What about the COVID vaccine?
1: <laughs> literally, I mean, so the, the mRNA technology, I mean, that would pioneer that was curing cancer in some, you, you couldn't make money off curing cancer off these kids. But the scientists were devoted and dedicated to solving this problem with this technology and finding a way to, to cure some leukemias without having to require chemo or any of this incredibly damaging radiation. And that technology now has been used to save countless lives. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know that anyone anticipated it, you know, 25 years ago when this research first started, but the, there was a, you know, a unique situation, very, very few people, nobody can make money off solving this problem, but companies did. Now they did because a lot of people, they have good hearts, but also they knew that somehow something would come out of it where they could make money. <laughs> and they they were right about it. They 25 years in the future, but you know, now they're, they're able to at least, reap some of those benefits so that focusing on some an area where very few people you, in the grand scheme of things would benefit um, had a huge, a huge impact on so many people today that just don't even know What went into making this technology work?
0: I think that there's an ethical question here about the importance of thinking about how people on the margins actually drive technological progress. When we make things better for one group, I think we oftentimes make things better for everyone. It sounds like that resonates
1: (laughs) with you a bit. And you just can't know. You just can't know. This is why it's so important. I'm telling you, one advice I have for all technologists is always focus on where your passions are because you won't go wrong. I mean, uh, you, you can go wrong in anything else, but if, if you're passionate about solving a problem, focus on that. It, you may not get that immediate payoff, but something positive will happen. At the worst case, if you focus on that, you'll satisfy the passions. I mean, that's a great outcome. So, I mean, the people who focused on these technologies, you know, people who focused on uh, building these systems, for example, these, these automated Braille systems that people could use to just simply put their hands across the pad and, and, and dynamically read. Um, and, and also these technologies, I, when I was, uh, I, I used to tutor people who were blind in calculus and we had to develop these tools. In order to help them, for example, see and get these images of these kind of three-dimensional pictures that we're drawn out that you know, sighted people get to just take advantage of, just look at it, right? And in these these tools and these ben- that that were developed here, the people who had developed them, they got the joy of seeing them actually work then. So who the hell cares if they they made money out of that? They 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 got that reward, but also those those things, you know, we know now some of these technologies have gone on to, to benefit so many other people in so many uh, ways that I don't think we would have necessarily thought about.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you a question also uh, about the balance between that bottom line and that vision or trying to solve a, a problem. In, in tech, I oftentimes hear companies talk about how acting or producing ethically can compromise their bottom line or that it's just not feasible if they want to be profitable, which is of course you know, it, true. As a business, they need to make money. So how do you balance the challenge of needing to make money while also wanting to do good? Do you see yourself making? making compromises in your ethics ever to remain profitable or making compromises in your profits to remain ethical?
1: I, I got to say, in our company, we just haven't, I got to say, even in this the field of werewolves, It's not often that I see this. Like, for example, when I think of ethics, I mostly think of it in terms of a more simplistic view. You know, I haven't studied ethics in a classical way, is what I should say. I typically think of it in in terms of you got consenting adults, and the worst thing you can do is lie and mislead to them. And and so, what what are we doing that is lying or misleading in any way? And it ends up being pretty easy for us to, to call out. And the first time, I got to say, I was really concerned about in this field where I felt that this was a really line and misleading aspect was a startup company. And this company claimed that they could, uh, (laughs) this is hysterical, with a wearable device. I'll never forget this. I was at Kleiner Perkins and I was trying to raise money for our company. And they said, well, how come you can't do what this company does? It's a startup company. And the company claimed that they could measure what you ate. So that through the wearable device, they could tell you how many calories you ate. And at the end of the day, they could count those calories without you having to add them up in any way just by you wearing the wearable device. which was a complete BS. There was no way that was true investors were still buying into it because the value of the company that could do this would be astronomical. And so people just wanted to throw money at this just because they wanted to believe. But then I saw it from larger companies in ways that that concerned me. One of them, like I said, with Apple and, okay, you create this AFib technology, but are you really doing a public good or or are you just associating your brand with health? And also Google Fitbit when it's just hard to conceive of how it is. Google's answer to the European Union about what they were going to do with this data was not. It was not agreeable to me. I looked at it, I got to say my first gut response was it was a slap to anyone in the medical wearables field. So those things are rare, but they do happen. And from my standpoint, that's how I've identified them, is by them at minimum being misleading. In some cases, in the case of that startup company, just flat out lying.
0: I mean, the case that comes to mind for me is Theranos, which is a trial that is ongoing at this very moment. Elizabeth Holmes is standing trial for proposing and claiming that her technology, which was a testing technology for blood, could do things that were technologically impossible. And of course, people were relying on that data from those tests. And the
1: poor employees, I mean, you know, they, can you imagine those employees and how they, you read about what they went through and, you know, they knew that they could do some good if they stayed in that company. And at the same time, they knew what the company was saying it could do. It couldn't do at the time. So you really caught, you know, do you stay with this company and you try and put some good into it? Cause you know, if you could do a fraction of these things, it still has tremendous public health value. Or do you just get the hell out of there? Cause you feel like there's nothing you can do about it. And I, I got to say, that's a tough call.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to switch gears and ask you a couple questions, Dr. LaBeouf, because I know that before going into industry, you're an academic working with the undergraduate and graduate students. And in that context, I wanted to ask you a few questions about how you view the academy, especially from outside of the ivory tower. Presumably, academia trains students not just to become miniature academics. But to also go out and do things in industry, are we training people well? Does academia get everything right, or if not, what does academia get wrong in terms of training people for industry, specifically for tech?
1: So that's a, of course that's a broad question in so many ways. I think that from my my experience has been the culture that you create and foster for these students becomes super important. That you, and you see it. It's very common to see a student, you know, graduate student, a Ph.D., and, and then meet their advisor and see that, wow, that apple didn't fall too far from the tree. There's a resonance there. And so it's really, really important. If you're a professor and you're bringing on students uh, and, and, and you're really trying to foster them, that you start the culture that you're going to be proud of, <laughs> because that's going to carry over. It, it's, it's like a family you're creating. That, so that's one thing I would say. Another thing I would say is that one of one, one of the folks in our company, part of the Valencell posse, is one of our data scientists. After his first year of being hired, I asked him, "What do you feel about the company? You've been here a year, and what what are your thoughts?" I, every so often, I meet with the folks who work there and I have a one on one to just understand anything they want to talk. And he, one thing he said is, "I feel that Valencell is a company of academics in a good way." And I said, "Oh, well, that's wow, that's flattering. I think, but what does that mean? What does that mean?" And, and he said that we focus on getting the right answer, but we also focus on getting the right answer in a way that it is going to really lead to a positive outcome. In academia, what will often happen is it'll be a discussion about ideas and there'll be research funded. It's, it's not always clear how you would connect that to some positive outcome. Now, that ain't bad. That ain't bad. I don't, I, it's not always bad because sometimes you just need people talking because somebody else will hear and they'll figure out a better way to do something with it. But it is, it is good if you could figure out a way to, to pull some of those ideas, to, to channel those more readily into something that could have some positive outcome.
0: I think about it a lot, that a lot uh, in academia. We're trained to think critically, so we're really great problem finders—a uh, trait that I find very admirable in critical thinking as applied to the world, and oftentimes incredibly unpleasant when applied to other people. Which is why I, I minimize my time with other academics. We're terrible, uh, but, but you know, the other the other point that you bring up is really, I think, important—that people can't just be problem. Finders. They have to also be problem solvers. At
1: bare minimum, I would say that if you're going to be a problem finder, find a way. You don't need to be the problem solver, but there needs to be a way for you to connect that dot. somehow to get in a way where problem solvers can hear it and understand it well enough to, to take action on that. And Valence Cell, we, we set ourselves up that way more culturally. You know, we like to solve big problems that are almost impossible to solve. I mean, before we came along, there was no way to measure heart rate optically while you move about your day. The only way you can measure your heart rate optically is in a hospital with that finger clip, and you had to be completely still. You know, that little pulse ox finger clip? That was the only way you could do it. As, as soon as you'd walk around, it would not measure you right because the subtle, like I gave the example with the flashlight, the slightest motion, makes more noise than your heartbeats, tiny little heartbeat does. We had to solve that problem, and no one thought that was solvable. I remember presenting those ideas to companies like Garmin and Pola, Electro, the kind of pioneers in the the chest straps. They said, nope, ain't ever going to happen. And now that's all they sell pretty much is the optical technology. And we're doing it now with blood pressure. I feel we'll also do it with categorizing your glucose metabolism. Uh, AliveCore, like the company I talked about before, that they keep coming out with new ways to use this ECG technology to to help identify problems that people can be proactive on and save them a lot of health uh, issues and a lot of health costs and it, it, all kinds of stuff. If you check them out, they've got some new stuff all the time that they're discovering they could do. So I you know, I feel good about us getting those things out.
0: What about you know, as a professional problem finder <laughs> whose problem finding energies are oriented toward ethics? When you worked with students, both graduate and undergraduate students, did they think about the ethics of what they were studying or what they were envisioning in terms of taking their study to industry?
1: to my point earlier it really depended on which professor's group they were in professors who fostered a culture of encouraging ethics yeah they did professors that did not have that as part of their culture you, we didn't see that so much and in companies also you can you can tell you know like in my field I'm not going to call say the names of these companies but I've visited several of these companies in the field of wearables where you walk in and they, they're they not forthcoming. They don't tell you what their goals are in the conversation. And you feel that it's the culture is really one of bottom line. And, and don't say anything to this other company. They might take your idea. It's bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. And so I, I feel that the short answer is, make a short story long to answer your question, I have seen it many, both ways. And I really do feel that the strongest connection I could see or pattern I could see is, is the, the culture of that group.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that this is true both across academia and industry, which is you know, people sometimes say, well, how can I build an ethical company? How can I make my company that I built ethical? And I, I, my response to that is usually ethics isn't like a prosthetic you can put on top of a company. It actually has to be in the culture of the company. You have to start building it at the foundations. If you want ethical products, if you want ethical culture, if you want an ethical outcome, it has to be something that you build in the foundations and not something you think about at the end.
1: Yeah. So one example is, that comes to my mind because it's so powerful in the healthcare industry is Affordable Healthcare Act. Everybody who I saw working on that at the high level had wanted people to have better health outcomes. But what happened by accident was that the goal became instead of everyone having access to healthcare, high quality healthcare they can afford, which you know is a noble goal, it became everyone get an insurance. And so you can see how People can still have the same positive desire, but just by them, changing the nature of a goal could lead to a bad outcome. Because in one case, if, if, you, if the goal is for everyone to have quality health care they can afford, um, then nobody gets left out of quality health care. No matter how much you can afford to pay for it, you're going to get quality health care. You can afford to pay nothing. You get it for nothing. If you can afford to pay a lot, you get it for a lot. But when you say everyone, the goal is to everyone to be insured, what if everyone's insured, but there's no resources to give anybody anything? And, and so where, you know, even even if the ethics might have been all aligned, wanting better healthcare, just by labeling the goal a certain way could lead people down the wrong path.
0: I think we have time for one last question. And I like to ask guests on the show to share their wisdom or insight on preparing the next generation to think about tech in ethical terms. What do you think that students going into tech, humanists, social and political scientists, STEM students should be sure to know or think about or understand before they go into industry.
1: I'll give you an analogy. Okay. Right now I'm talking to you from Raleigh, North Carolina. It's my new home. I was born and raised in the swamp and I moved to to Raleigh. It's it's a it's a city. It's uh, much, much smaller than San Francisco, much, much smaller than the, the 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 Silicon Valley area, much smaller of course than the great northeast in Boston. And we we we're here and we have this pressure a lot of times from from large companies coming in and then st- building hubs in in some cases outright moving because of the talent that's here and when that happens you feel this kind of this sucking sound of talent maybe going to these larger companies and then you start to wonder okay should we even let these companies in our town because you know the, the North Carolina has these companies that grew out of the soil uh SAS the world's largest privately owned software company came out of the soil of Raleigh uh, Cree the world's lar- largest lighting company, uh, uh, Red Hat, the you know the the world's first open source uh, uh, software company. I mean, all out of the soil of, of, of Raleigh, North Carolina. And so, part of me says, you know, sometimes says, should we let these companies in and then destroy our culture? But then I realize there's another way to look at this: let them come and let us show them what we can do to make them more ethical. Uh, can, yeah, so I think w- when you're in these positions where you. you Want to see a more equitable and, and ethical outcome in, in the world? Don't turn away these large companies. Figure out how you can uh, figure out how you can move them. If you get it in there, you don't feel you can move them, get the hell out. But at least give it a chance. See see how you can steer them because they can use it, and it's an opportunity for leadership.
0: LaBeouf, thank you very much for the conversation. All right, thanks for your time. Jeff. One quick note before we go. I am thrilled to join Cal Poly's Center for Expressive Technologies for a talk by UC Berkeley's Dr. Morgan Ames on November 9th. Drawing from her forthcoming book, Morgan Ames will chronicle the life and legacy of the One Laptop Per Child project and explain why, despite its failures, the same utopian visions that inspired OLPC still motivate other projects trying to use technology to disrupt education and development. Dr. Ames will also discuss her recent work on inequalities and technology in California, which includes investigations of youth cultures, Minecraft, and a generational difference in programming origin stories. We are opening the virtual event up to the public, so join us. You can find information on our upcoming events page on www.etcalpoly.org. The event is sponsored by the National Science Foundation which funds our Future of Work in Ethical Technology grant, along with the Center for Expressive Technologies and the Cal Poly English Department. That's November 9th at 4 p.m., and you can find more information on our website at www.etcalpoly.org.